Father, we come to you this morning in the name that is above all names, the name of Jesus, that powerful, wonderful name that is exalted above all else. And that just reminds us to say thank you for making a way for us to be acceptable to you through Christ. Thank you that that gives us an audience with you through Christ. Thank you that that gives us a future and a hope with you through Christ. And so we thank you that you're even right here now with us because of Christ and because of the gift of the Holy Spirit that is within us and always is with us. I think today as we come through this part of the year, we want to thank you for a little bit of rain and a little bit of cooler temperatures. Thank you for the break here. We need that and we thank you that you've been kind enough to give it to us. And we uh, do pray for farmers and people who are raising cattle and growing crops and we pray that you would be merciful to them and and help them this past year was a rough year for agriculture and yet all of us who might think we don't really care and yet we all eat and so well we want to pray for them and want to pray for our nation and pray for these upcoming elections next year and pray that you would have mercy on us and give us good leadership and pray that you would help our land and heal our land We pray as we think about teachers and students going back to school and we want to pray for them and pray that you would use Christian students as well as Christian uh, teachers for your glory and to counteract some of the junk and the false things that are going on in this world. And we pray, Lord, for a revival to take place among Christian people in our school systems, that they would be on fire for Christ And pray, Lord, that we would not be just bowing down to Caesar, but we would be able to take advantage of the opportunities that we've been given because Jesus is Lord and he's commanded us to be witnesses wherever we go. And that's what we want to do. And we admit we're very poor at it, so forgive us and help us and strengthen us. And then I think about people like Miss Dell Speakman and pray that you would help her. And pray that uh, she would uh, start to feel better. Danny Hudler, I know, hasn't been feeling well and battling pneumonia. Please uh, help him. And then uh, Diana Long's father uh, took a fall and he's got a brain bleed. And we uh, pray, Lord, for her and ask you to bless her and her own personal health. And uh, bless Sarah as this is her uh, grandfather. And we pray, Lord, that you would give him peace. Ninety-five years old. And if this is the time that you've chosen to take him home, I pray it would be a peaceful transition and pray for a blessing on the family. And if it's you, your will to leave him here a while longer, then praise the Lord for that. And uh, then we got sad news this morning that John and Michelle Rawson were on their way to El Paso because Michelle's brother, as we've been praying for him and his cancer, and uh, then just got word a little while ago that he passed away while they were on the road. And we want to pray for comfort for all of that family. And thank you that you are a God who, um, well, Jesus wept with Mary and Martha at the tomb of Lazarus. Even before he raised him from the dead, he still wept with him. And it reminds us of what the book of Hebrews says. We have a sympathetic high priest. And it's so good to know that you care. It's so good to know that we don't have to come before you and tell you what's going on or get your attention. We don't have to inform you. We don't have to advise you. We simply come to you, Lord, because we trust you. And we rest our head on the pillow of God's sovereignty. Thank you, Lord, that you are in control. And I know there are people that I haven't mentioned today. 
And uh, I pray you would let them know they're not just left out and forgotten. You're praying for them, and we think about them, and we ask you to bless today. And we pray for the rest of this service. Would you bless the preaching of your word and bless this poor, lisping, stammering tongue, as the hymn writer said. And I pray, Father, that the truth of the Scripture through the Holy Spirit would be what comes forth and touches heart. Bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. And for those who are saved, build them up in the faith today. And uh, may we leave here today as changed people, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We are still in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And uh, we're going to back up just a tad from where we were last week and talk about uh, some things that we didn't have a chance to talk about. God sent His Son is the theme of all of this. I want to read you a quote from a, a guy named Paul Washer. If you've ever heard him preach, he's a tremendous. He's really tough, but he's a tremendous preacher. And here's what he says, and I agree wholeheartedly with it. So many people think that the gospel is for lost people. It is for lost people, but it is even more for converted people. The more you and I understand what truly happened on that cross, the more you and I will be driven to serve Christ. Not out of legalism, not out of some fear or dread, but simply out of joyful appreciation. Look what he did for you on that cross. Let's pray again. I know we just did. Let's pray again. Father, as we read the word, may we think about what Christ did for us on the cross. Far above any advice we could give, far above any counsel we could give, the gospel is the main thing. That's what changes our hearts and lives. Even after salvation, we're reminded of what a wretched sinner we have been and what a glorious, gracious Savior you always are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, when we look uh, at uh, John chapter 1 and we go down to verse 10, we want to make some comments on these verses, but we want to read the text first. The most important part of the sermon is the Word of God. Here's what it says. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right, the authority, the power to become the children of God. That speaks of the fact that we don't deserve it, we don't earn it. And to them who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is God's will that you're saved. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And I read those words, and I almost want to just say, let's just pray again, because they're such powerful words, and these are the kind of things that any preacher would feel inadequate to try to explain. And so that's why it must be the Holy Spirit. And these things are so deep and so powerful. But the first thing I noticed in here that I wanted to share with you is I think verse 10 
is reasonable. It's a reasonable expectation. He was in the world, and the world was made by him. Now, we know all of that, the world made through him. But here's what John emphasizes, and the world did not know him. And you know what? That doesn't surprise me. That seems normal. That seems like uh, something that would be perfectly logical and to be expected. And uh, so here he is coming in perfect humanity and absolute undiminished deity to the world that he made. And the world basically, Rome yawned. Athens had nothing to say about it. Egypt was unconcerned. They were going about their business on the day that Jesus Christ was born. And then even as he grew, largely unconcerned, Rome wasn't concerned. It wasn't that they were hearing about some, the rise of some new prophet in Judah, in Judah uh, Judea, uh, or Galilee. And they just looked and said, yeah, what's new? Those people always have something that is going on there. And uh, the only thing we want to do is to try to keep the peace. And uh, the Greeks, you know, this is the wisest man that has ever lived. Oh, there's nothing they can teach us. They even said to the Apostle Paul on Mars Hill, let's listen to this guy and see if he has anything new to tell us. Because they were so arrogant, they didn't think there was anything they needed to know. They were pretty smug in what they knew, what they thought, what they believed, who their gods and goddesses were. Uh, you know, just the course of life. They didn't really need anything else added unto them. And yet Jesus, the God-man, has come to earth and it's just kind of no big deal. Just, you know, okay, something's happened over there. Other than, of course, the wise men, the magi. But, uh, you know, just a few of them, a handful out of all of the world that existed during that time, largely just didn't care because they didn't really know who he was. The word know here is more than just uh, the way we talk about, yeah, I know him or knowing about him or anything like that or even recognizing him. Uh, this is much deeper, much more intimate. The knowledge that says, I know who you are, I embrace that, I receive that, and I believe that. And uh, so the world just didn't, you know, really pay much attention to it all. And uh, the reason I think this is logical is I kind of would expect the pagan world to reject Jesus Christ. I mean, if Jesus had come to Rome, what do you think their reaction would have been? Uh, just another god, maybe. Another goddess. We can have more. The Greeks did the same thing. They were constantly adding to their, uh, uh, their um, gods and goddesses that they would worship. They could always build a new temple. They could always build a new idol. They could always say, well, you know, there's a little bit to this. And uh, so we need this. They even had altars to an unknown god when Paul spoke on uh, Mars Hill. And I think of uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. It says, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So when I read that first verse that he came to the world and the world did not know him, I'm not surprised. They weren't looking for him. They didn't understand anything about God. They all worshiped various gods and goddesses. You see, the unique and wonderful thing is, is with the emergence of Israel... And the influence of Israel, that's what brought monotheism into the world. Monotheism, the idea that there's one God, 
did not exist in the world except through the Jews. And the Jews brought that in and, and raised the consciousness so that even Gentiles might say, well, what if they're right? What if there is only one true and living God? We have many gods and goddesses, and if there's only one true and living God, then we better find the right one. This cannot be right. They also brought the idea of uh, a Messiah, I said, there's a Messiah that's coming. There's a Messiah that's coming. And he's going to come at any time. Well, that kind of thing would perk up the ear of Caesar or of a governor like Pontius Pilate. We don't need the Jews to have any other king. We don't need this expectation where they might break out in a riot or a revolution or anything like that. We've got to protect the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome in the empire. And so they were attuned to that. But they weren't looking for a savior. They didn't think they needed a savior. They thought that everything was fine. And yet the idea that someone is coming, see, that's what the wise men, the magi said. They looked and they saw the new star and they follow it into Jerusalem and they say to Herod, where is he that, uh, that is born the king of the Jews? And uh, that just freaked everybody out, didn't it? Because the Jews brought this idea of a coming Savior, a coming Messiah, a coming King, a coming Christ. And so even the Gentiles were somewhat aware of this, even though they didn't believe it, and even though they weren't going to trust Him, they were concerned about all of this. Israel, being such a small country, always seems to have a major impact no matter what part of history that it's in. And the Jews seem to have major impact on all kinds of things, the economy, science, medicine, all of those kind of things at any place in history, even when Israel didn't exist. And even today we find that Israel is kind of a burden to the world. The United Nations votes more against Israel than they ever vote for it. And a lot of the terrorism that the United States uh, faces and has to deal with comes because of our friendship with Israel. Some Muslims say that uh, the United States is the great Satan and then they tie Israel with that as the little Satan and uh, we're closely allied. Harry Truman was the first head of state to recognize Israel as a nation and I think God has blessed our nation because we have by and large stood with Israel and the promise to Abraham was I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those that curse you so pray for Israel and pray for our country that we will stand with Israel but they've always had an impact on the world or any empire that uh, they were in or under so even the idea of one true God and a coming Messiah had kind of touched some of these other nations. But even so, we're not surprised to hear that in Rome they didn't really care. They didn't know Jesus. They didn't react to Jesus. They didn't have anything really to do with him. And the same thing is true with Athens. So what, they said, and uh, with Egypt and other countries like that. So that, that's not terribly surprising when you think about it. But this next verse, we uh, mentioned this last week that it is ironic. And so we'll call it this week the shocking reality though. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. 
Uh, William Barclay, almost said Charles Barclay, William Barclay translated this verse. He came to his own home and his own people or family, and they gave him no welcome. Uh, you know, when you think about to the Christmas story, and I like to talk about the Christmas story uh, at times other than Christmas, because I think at Christmas we expect it, and we're kind of used to Luke chapter 2 and all of that. And we're busy with so many other things. But now here at the first week of August in the dog days of summer, stop and think about Christmas. And it's more than just cooler weather and Frosty the snowman. Uh, it's much more than that. Think about how Christ came to earth in order to be your Savior. And think about what the reaction was in Jerusalem of all places. Where the temple was. Where the high priest lived. Think about all of that. These people who knew the word of God backwards and forward, and yet they had no idea that a Savior had been born. In fact, we kind of get the idea reading in Scripture that that night in Bethlehem, being a small town, and all of the people there, remember they, uh, Caesar Augustus or Octavian, had sent out a decree that all the world should be registered and taxed. And so they had to go to their ancestral homeland, which means that nearly everybody in Bethlehem on the night that Jesus is born, they were kinfolk, as we would say. They were related. They were all of the tribe of Judah, and they were all close. And, you know, it's uh, interesting that uh, somebody might say, Oh, did you hear that Mary had her baby? Oh, did she? Oh, well, everything okay? Yeah, everything's good. Well, good. That's great. We'll have to... Uh, get the baby something, maybe we have a gift for Mary or something like that. No, no big deal. Nobody really thought much about the Messiah. Nobody expected the Messiah to come. In fact, when the wise men inquired of Herod, they had to go look it up because it was not on their radar. Watch Bethlehem and pay attention over there. That's where the Messiah is going to be born, even though it had been prophesied. And then think of all of the other prophecies that the Lord Jesus fulfilled. And right there in a stable in Bethlehem, there the God-man has made his appearance on earth and all of the prophecies that have been in the Old Testament and in Judaism have been fulfilled right there and they basically didn't know it, didn't even understand it, didn't even give it a second thought. Think about that. They would pray every Saturday in the synagogue for the Lord to send the Messiah and uh, there he was and they didn't even seem to notice. In fact, it got worse because as time went on and Jesus started his public ministry, they actually rejected him. You remember at his trial, they said, uh, or, or um, excuse me, they said at one point, we will not have this man to be king over us. And at his trial, they said, let his blood be on us and on our children. Well, that's a horrible thing to say. And it is an amazing thing to think about how they as a nation have suffered over all of these years since the crucifixion of Christ because his blood truly was upon them and upon their descendants. And we think about that and we go, why didn't they see? They were blinded. They were prideful. 
They were religious. They were trusting in their rituals. They thought that they were more moral than everybody else. They looked down upon other people and thought they were better than other people. And so they didn't really see a need for a Messiah like Jesus. Jesus did not fit their expectation of what a Messiah ought to be. So we'll pass and we'll just wait for another one to come. Surely if this one doesn't work out. Then God will send another one. Who will throw off the Romans. And restore Israel's kingdom. And uh, power. And set somebody on the throne of David. But they had already said. We will not have this man. To be king over us. These are his own. As John says. Now when we think about the term. His own. He came to his own. His own what? is the question that probably ought to come to our mind. Well, think about it like this. He came to his own land. Did you know that God claimed ownership over the land of Israel, over the region that is called Palestine, which is a, a, a Latin version of the word Philistines? And the Romans gave that to that land. It's not the proper name of the land. It's kind of a dig at Israel. And in Zechariah chapter 2.12, it says... And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in, and look what he calls it, the Holy Land. You ever heard about people wanting to make a trip to the Holy Land? Why do we call it that? Is it just a phrase or a cliche? It's because it's in the Bible. It is the Holy Land. It's a land, the word holy means set apart. And this is a land that is set apart for the Jewish people, the children of Abraham, and it's set aside for the Lord himself. That's where Jesus is going to return to that land that he calls holy, that he calls his own. And he's going to rule and reign there and uh, rule and reign over the world. And the Jewish people are going to be there no matter how many people try to wipe them out. And uh, that's uh, important. Hosea chapter 9 verse 3 they shall not remain in the land of the Lord. Did you get that? Whose land? The land of the Jews? Well, yeah, kind of. But ultimately, it says here that it is the land of the Lord. So Jesus didn't go to Italy, and Jesus didn't go to Egypt, and Jesus didn't go to Greece. Jesus came to his own land, his own land. He came into his own. We can think about the place where he was born. Ephraim shall return to Egypt and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. But this land is still going to be the land of the Lord. No matter what happens and no matter where the Jews are scattered. No matter what kind of holocaust may happen to them. No matter what gods or goddesses they may worship uh, at various times and different times. This land is set apart and reserved and it's reserved for the Lord, his plan and his purposes. And he is still working in and through uh, Israel and the Jewish people. So he came into his own land. Let's think about that. Let's also think about this. He came into his own, his own people. Jesus had created the Jews. He had called them out. They were the seed of Abraham. They had inhabited the land before. Now they're conquered. They're overrun by the Romans. But it's interesting that as a whole, they never intermingled and never intermarried to the degree that the race would be wiped out. I have uh, different uh, bloodlines and nationalities in me 
that don't exist anymore, most likely. I mean, there may be a little bit of Hittite in me. Who knows? And yet we don't ever talk about the Hittite race or anything like that. Can you imagine, you know, Hittite lives matter or anything like that? You just don't hear about them. They're gone. But the Jews, being an ancient race like the Hittites and the Perizzites and all of those ites that are listed in the Old Testament from thousands of years ago, they still remain. And you can still find people that are Jews racially and religiously. And we have a nation that is set aside for them that the Star of David flies over their land and uh, they are still there. Israel remains. Somebody said that uh, if you want any proof that the Bible is indeed the Word of God, just look at the Jew and look at Israel. There's no reason for them to still exist and for them to not have been enfolded into the masses of humanity except that Jesus is going to return to Israel, touching down on the Mount of Olives, ruling and reigning from the throne of his father David, and uh, that's why they still remain. These are his own people. In uh, Psalm 135, verse 4, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself and Israel for his own possession. These are the people of God. So it makes sense that when Jesus came, he would come and be a part of the people that the Lord has chosen for his own possession. Deuteronomy 14.2 says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. And so Jesus didn't just come to some random tribe in South America or Africa or any place like that. He didn't come. Good night. What were Europeans back in those days? Uh, we were, our ancestors were painting their faces blue and worshiping trees. And Jesus didn't come to them. Uh, contrary to... Uh, what the Mormons think, he didn't come to North America. Uh, he came to his own, his own land and his own people, the people chosen by him. You would think they would welcome him with wide open arms. Praise God, the Messiah has come. Now the angels are singing glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. But the average citizen in Bethlehem or Jerusalem, they just slept through the night. When Jesus is born. He also came to his own religion. Where did the Jewish religion come from? It was established in the law of Moses. And it was written by God. God gave them the rites, the rituals, the statutes that they were to live by. He taught them about himself. And uh, so this is not like Jesus is stepping down into the temple of Zeus or something like that. He's coming into Bethlehem just a short distance from Jerusalem. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 and 3, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery or bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. This was established by God. You would think that his people in his land that are of his religion would be so fine-tuned into all of this, they would have known and they would have received him and they would have worshipped him. He came unto his own. Isaiah 56 verse 7. Even then I will bring to my holy mountain, that's where the temple is, and uh, make them joyful in the house 
in uh, my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Notice all the mys. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now what is it that the Jews always were fixated on? It was the temple. And they're on the temple mount. And we're going to go to the temple. They would travel great distances to go to the temple to worship, to offer sacrifices, to celebrate the various feasts and all of those things. And I think they probably did a little bit like we did uh, or like we do. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, this is my church? Now, I understand what you mean by that, but technically not so much. There's only one head of the church. And that's Jesus Christ. Sometimes we talk about a church and we put the pastor's name with it. Do you go to Brother So-and-So's church or Pastor So-and-So's church? Well, Pastor So-and-So, including me, we don't have a church. We are just simply fulfilling the uh, role of under-shepherd under the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, so we sometimes get away from that and probably the Jews did the same thing we're going to go to uh, maybe a little kid says daddy where are we going why are we traveling oh we're going to go to our temple this is where we worship our God and they had everything kind of fixated upon themselves and what they did and yet you notice here in that verse we just read God keeps saying it's mine it's mine it's mine it's mine and I think we get off track and we get out of whack when we forget that it belongs to the Lord. Graceway Baptist Church does not belong to any of us. Graceway Baptist Church belongs to the Lord exclusively. He alone is our King. He alone is the head of the church. And He alone is the one who is to be pleased by what goes on in the church. We say sometimes, boy, I like that message. That's, I'm glad, but that's really not important. Was God pleased with the message? Well, I like that song. I'm glad, but that's really not the important thing. Was the Lord pleased with the music? We think about all of the things that we do. Well, I'm glad we do that. I'm pleased with that. That's a great thing that we do. That's not really the main issue. The main issue is, is God pleased with that and so until we really submit before him and follow his will and follow his word for the church we're really taking ownership of what we don't really own and I suspect that's what the Jews would do as well it's kind of human nature to take ownership and they had no right to that particular ownership so he came to his own his own land his own people, even his own religion, that religion that he had established, but his own, his own land, his own people, his own religion, they received him not. Just stop and think about how staggering that is. And yet it wasn't unexpected. In Isaiah chapter 53, I'm going to do something I hardly ever do. I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation. Uh, Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised 
and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Does that get the point across? That's how strongly it's worded on those words that we read out of Isaiah. And we're so familiar with them, we don't really think that much about them. But to think, we turned our backs on him, he was despised, and we did not care. That was a prophecy several hundred years before the Messiah ever came. So it wasn't something that caught God off guard. It wasn't something that God had to say, hey, these people don't like us. We better come up with something else. It's not anything like that at all. He knew. And it had to happen that way because he was going to die on a cross. And people didn't tend to crucify folks that they liked, folks that they admired, folks that they were following. It had to be this way. And so all of the things that went on with Christ, his birth, his life, all of the, uh, the uh, uh, uproar that he caused in different places. He goes to his own synagogue in Nazareth where he grew up. And by the time he finishes the message, they want to kill him, his own people. And so all of this has to happen, even the betrayal of Judas and all of those things, because he came to die. He didn't come to live he came to die and be the sacrifice for our sins. And so we find this uh, strange thing. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. That's uh, something that we probably wouldn't expect. We would expect him to have a hero's welcome and that type of thing. Like in the movie It's a Wonderful Life when Harry Bailey wins the Congressional Medal of Honor or whatever it was he won. The whole town celebrated and when he comes back home they're all excited about the thing. Well that's not what Jesus' experience was like at all. From the very beginning doubted and rejected and uh, people wanting to kill him. This is just absolutely incredible when you think about it from a human standpoint. But this was the plan of a sovereign God. Number three, I want you to notice the gracious promise. And John includes in here, talk about the gospel. But that word of great contrast. Here's something different. They wouldn't receive him. But as many as received him... To them, he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. Now think about it. What happened when he came to earth and when he lived on earth that caused the Jewish nation to be in such an uproar and have such rejection for him. But then you think about there were other people that came along and they said, you are the Christ the son of the living God, like the apostle Peter did. Who was the apostle Peter? Well, to us, he's a great hero of the faith. He has cathedrals and churches and all kinds of things named after him now. But back in the day when, in which Peter lived, Peter was a who cares person. Who cares what Peter says? It wasn't like if Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It wasn't like the high priest said it. It wasn't like that somebody in an influential, powerful position would say it. Who cares what Peter thinks? Peter's a nobody. Peter's a nothing. A nothing burger, I guess we would say, in that particular time and phrase. He's just an ignorant fisherman. Who cares what Peter thinks? Well, the Lord did. Let that sink in. Nobody else cared except the one that really matters. 
the Lord in heaven on his throne. And I think we overlook that too much. And I think we kind of have an inferiority complex as we look around the world. We think that if God would save a big-time athlete or a big-time politician or a big-time celebrity, man, that would make a big impact for the kingdom of God. Well, if he indeed saves them, I hope it does. But have you noticed that when celebrities confess their faith in Christ, they automatically become a B or C list celebrity? They're no longer impactful. They're no longer powerful. They're no longer listened to. They don't make posters out of those kind of people. Those kind of people don't really sell many books, except among Christians, of course. It just is amazing how that happens, because the church is really built on a bunch of nobodies. Think about it. Paul said, not many noble, not many wise, not many rich. Oh, there are some, but not many. And they don't really have the impact that you would think that they would have because the world lies in the sway of the wicked one. But all throughout history, starting when Jesus came to earth, who did he call as his disciples? Who were the people that followed him? A bunch of nobodies. And who are we gathered today? A bunch of nobodies who have been accepted by somebody, the one who really matters, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And you think about all of that. Here it is. Jesus listens to Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. Can you imagine the fact that when you were saved, you weren't trying to get God's attention? He already had it. And He was working in you. And the reason you were saved and the reason you confessed Christ as Lord and Savior is because the King was working in you a nobody's life. And He made you a somebody because now you are a child of God and a child of the King. That is an amazing, amazing thing. So Jesus, or John, pardon me, talks about this here. All of these people, all of the important people, all of the influential people that were in his own land, the people that were his own people that he had redeemed out of Egypt and all of these other things, all of these that were in his own religion, his own temple, his own house with his own offices, the high priest and others, and all of the rituals that belonged to him. And you know, what they did nothing and then a fisherman named Peter says you are the Christ the son of the living God and Jesus turns around and says blessed are you for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you but my father I got a feeling that is true of everybody that is born again it wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood the father gave that truth to you and he has redeemed you and he has made you his child. You ought to rejoice over that because that is an amazing, amazing thing. And that's where I see such a gracious thing here. And uh, this word receive here, it means to do what the Jews didn't do as a whole. Some of them did, of course. It means to welcome and to submit to him. It means to personally believe and have personal trust in all that he is 
and all that he came to do. You see, you can't accept Jesus as a man and not as God. You've got to accept him as the God-man. You can't accept Jesus as somebody who is a moral leader or a philosopher or a teacher and deny what he did on the cross. You've got to embrace the whole package. And you can't just have him as a martyr dying on a cross for a cause in which he believed, saying we need to die for the cause in which we believe. It was him on the cross in our place taking the wrath of God the judgment of God the curse of God that we deserve because of our sin and completely draining that cup so that the curse is gone for those who trust in Christ it means that you also believe that he was not just buried and he's in a tomb somewhere in Israel as just a pile of bones a skeleton somewhere he rose from the dead on the third day and that's not even enough you believe that he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father where he sits ruling and reigning until his enemies are made his footstool and he is the returning king. You embrace the entire package not just the parts that you like. Jesus is not first cafeteria. I'll have a little of that. I'll have a little of that. Oh I like that. Oh keep those out of there. No Brussels sprouts please or whatever. You take the whole thing because every part of Jesus is good and holy and righteous and powerful and he is the sovereign king of the universe that's the only choice you've got as many as received him to them gave he the power to become the sons of God and so many people today folks they will name Jesus they may even say something right about Jesus but they don't embrace Jesus like we just preached him. They don't embrace Jesus like he is presented before the world. They take a part of Jesus, an aspect of Jesus, a concept of Jesus. I'm so sick of hearing politicians tell me what I am supposed to think about Jesus. I heard one the other day that was talking about if you don't accept the homosexual lifestyle and the transgender lifestyle then you're not obeying Jesus who told us to love one another and I look at them and I go you don't you can't give me chapter and verse you have no idea what is going on why don't you let me talk to you a little bit because I am a follower of the Lord Jesus and I probably know some things that you don't know wouldn't that be great if they would listen to us? But no, they want to dictate to us what we're supposed to believe, how we are supposed to act. And it's always according to their standard, not the Bible standard. In fact, back during COVID, they were even going to tell us whether we could worship or not. How dare they? They do not sit on a throne anywhere, much less in the throne of the heavens. There is one God and one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is king above all kings the head of the church and the sovereign over our lives we must obey God rather than men isn't that what it says and we've got to have just that commitment number four there's an unchangeable foundation and it says that these people who trusted him, now notice this. It doesn't say because they were smart, because they were holy, because they were moral, because they were religious, because they're better than other people, because they were not really sinners. It doesn't say that. Who were born not of blood, it's not natural, nor of the will of the flesh, because the flesh hates God, 
nor of the will of man, because man always goes the other way. You look at man's religions and you find all kinds of grotesque idols and all kinds of grotesque, terrible rituals and all kinds of perversion. That's what happens when you have the will of man, but it's the will of God. And that's why it stands. That's why people are still being saved. That's why you're saved. This was not about us and our will making a petition to God. Oh Lord, would you consider sending a Savior to the earth? We can't save ourselves. We need you. And all of us signed it and signed up. And God said, well, if you get 150,000 signatures, I'll consider it. It wasn't anything like that at all. It wasn't because a bunch of people got together even at the temple in Jerusalem and prayed over and over for a Messiah. They didn't even know and wouldn't even know a Messiah existed if it hadn't been written in Isaiah and other places or if it hadn't been given to Eve in the garden. Your seed will crush the head of the serpent. That was the first First gospel, the Proto-Evangelion is what it is in Greek. The first gospel there, and it developed over time. But it didn't come from us, by us, or through us. It came because of the will of God. And the reason you believed is because it was God's will for you to believe, because it goes on to say here, not of the will of man, but of God. And the Lord Pardon me, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we look through here and we find what doesn't change is the word who is God, he becomes flesh. That's the only way he could die. You can't kill a spirit, you can't crucify a spirit and spirits don't shed blood. So he put on an earth suit so he could come down here and live among us and live a perfect life, the only one who could and then die on the cross so his blood could be shed for us for apart from the shedding of blood there's no remission of sin. Only God could do it but it couldn't be done to God unless he put on flesh. And that's what your Lord was willing to do for you. To come to live here in flesh. The word dwelt, he dwelt among us. It's the word that means to pitch a tent. He tabernacled among us. Left heaven for a tent. An earthly tent. Now not a literal one of course. But speaking of his body. To go from being on nigh present to being locked into a body. Now that's a big, big change. To go from having need of nothing to being hungry, tired, thirsty, hurt, betrayed, all of those things that the Lord went through is an amazing thing. Some people say, I don't like camping unless I have a holiday in on wheels. Well, if you were to go out and leave your home in this August heat and to go live in a tent somewhere for a while, you would probably, if you're like me, you would be most uncomfortable and miserable in all of that. Well, that's what the word dwelt means. Jesus left the palace of heaven to come and live in an earthly tabernacle with all that that implies while he's here on earth. And John said we were privileged to see his glory. In Matthew 17, Peter, James, and John, the writer of our book, they saw Jesus' transformation. Did you know the root of the Greek word transformation is metamorphothehe? And it means metamorphosis. And in a metamorphosis, what is in you comes out. A caterpillar, for, a caterpillar has a butterfly inside of it. And in that cocoon, the butterfly comes out of the caterpillar. In this, the 
body of Christ veiled his glory. We sing about it at Christmas. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. I mean, it's really got a lot of truth in it, doesn't it? And in the transfiguration, the glory of God metamorphosized. It came out of him. And Peter, James, and John were blown away by all of that. They beheld his glory. And it says that he's full of grace and truth. Do you know in our world today, we think that grace and truth are two separate things, but they always go together. You say, well, what about grace? You know, grace is God being kind to us and overlooking all of those sins that we have committed. Uh, not really and not so fast on that because he judged all of those on Christ. All those sins you laugh about, all those sins you don't give a second thought about, all your thoughts and your motives as well as the things that you do and the things that you don't do but should do, those were all put on Christ and he felt the pain and the judgment for every one of them. So it wasn't so much that God just said, ah, never mind, ah, I'll just be gracious, don't worry about it, yeah, it's okay kind of like we do with other people no I don't worry about it no big deal that's not what grace is grace and truth go together the truth said you're a sinner and you personally deserve to die and spend eternity in hell and that is universal to all mankind for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God But grace comes because of truth. God said, you're a sinner. You don't deserve this. You deserve every bit of the fury of my wrath forever and ever. Conscious punishment in hell forever. But because of that truth, I'm going to do something for you that you could never do for yourself. I will send my son to die the innocent for the guilty. And you who deserve to die are not going to die. And he who did not deserve to die is going to die. And I am going to punish him for every little single thing that you have ever done that God would call sin. And he will bear that up. And if it's like we think of the cup that he talked about, the wrath of God, he drank the cup on the cross and he drained it. It is gone. The wrath of God is gone toward those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of your punishment was put on the cross and nailed to the cross, Paul says in Colossians, so that all of your sins are forgiven. Now it's a family issue, a relationship issue. So grace doesn't come until the truth is faced. And why aren't people just flocking to come to Christ and come before Because they don't like to face the truth about who he is and who they are. They like to think they're equal with God and Jesus is just another buddy, right? Me and Jesus got a good thing going, they might say. And Jesus is just all right with me. Remember that song? And all of these different things that come up where Jesus is taken down from His majesty and His glory and His sovereignty and His holiness. And He's just like one of us, just a good old boy. Can't do that. Jesus is Lord of all. 
And so grace and truth come together. The truth of who he is and the truth of who we are. We don't like to admit our sin. We like to proclaim our goodness, but we don't like to admit our sin. We like to cover it up. We like to hide it. We like to pretend it doesn't exist. And salvation only comes when you face the truth of who he is and what he did and the truth about who you are and what you deserve. And so uh, when you think about this, one guy said, This makes it clear that neither physical birth nor uh, ethnic descent nor human effort can make people children of God, but only God's supernatural work. And then he gives some verses to reference there and compare to. And it says, This extends the possibility of becoming God's children to Gentiles and not just Jews. This is a work of God. Now, the next slide, the last one, and all God's people said, this was real popular when I was young. About every other car you saw in uh, Tulsa's, where we lived at the time, said, I found it. And it was an evangelistic campaign that was supposed to make people come up and go, what would you find? Oh, I found Jesus. You know what uh, I found? That the Lord, I didn't find the Lord, but he found me. When you read about what Jesus said about the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son, it was always somebody else seeking it. Lost sheep don't seek the shepherd. The shepherd seeks the lost sheep. Lost coins don't seek the woman who owns them. The woman sweeps the house and finds the lost coin. And the father in the prodigal son was waiting for his son to return. And when he saw his son, he ran to that son and he embraced him because that's a picture, and those are parables about how God works. So don't get all arrogant and give the message to the world. I know something you don't know, and I found something you didn't find, and I'm smarter than you. No, because we didn't find him. He found us. Praise his holy name. Because I never would have found him had that been the case. Can you imagine God sitting on his throne and going, You're getting warmer. Oh, you're cold, cold, cold. That's not the way it works. Before the foundation of the world, God said his love on you and your name was written in the Lamb's book of life. And the rest of history has just been God redeeming those people that have been written in the Lamb's book of life. Seeking the lost and bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ. How in the world could you be apathetic about a God who has done that for you? So, Father, we come to you today saying, please forgive us. Because we think the gospel, I'm saved, I don't need that anymore. And yet we need it every day. Every day we need to be reminded of our sin. Every day we need to be reminded of what we deserve. Every day we need to be reminded that we didn't find you, you found us. Every day we need to be reminded we're not doing you a favor by being a Christian. You have favored us through your grace and you are full of grace and truth. The truth of our sin, of our unworthiness and the grace of God by which he made us acceptable through the death, burial, and resurrection of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to you today thanking you that we didn't find you, and you don't owe us because of that. You found us in the depth of our sin, in our darkness, in our pain, in our deadness, in our inability. You came to us 
And you birthed us into the family of God. And now we, a bunch of nobodies who deserve hell forever, are children of the Lord and children of the King. And we have a place reserved for us in heaven. And our confirmation number for our reservation is J-E-S-U-S. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.